I used to watch Siskel and Ebert at the movies, mm -hmm. and if they didn't like it, I went to see it. <laughs> The Dickheads are presented in color. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about, because I read your book, Conversations with Philip K. Dick, on the flight over here, and uh, one of the things I found interesting in the book was you mentioned that critics and scholars have typically kind of told Phil what his book was about when that's not what it was about. Uh -huh. And so I find that pretty intriguing and was wondering if you could kind of just tell us a little bit more oh, about that. expand on it? Yeah, if you could expand well, on Well, in uh, postmodernism, they talk about the death of the author. Mm -hmm. They say it doesn't matter what the author intended to put into the book. All that matters is what you get out of it. And Phil, uh, of course, was very much against that. Which of his prop books are you typically most often misinterpreted? Mm. Well, there's A Scanner Darkly, mainly the epilogue in which Phil calls himself a victim. Mm -hmm. People assume that he burned his brains out on drugs, but... What he really meant was he lost so many friends mm -hmm. because they destroyed themselves with drugs. So kind of the myth of, of Phil being a drug addict has been over, is that just essentially that, mostly a myth? Yeah. As his friend Ray Nelson said, Phil tried LSD two times, mm -hmm. and both times Ray Nelson gave it to him. And it wasn't a street drug, it was the real LSD from UCLA, made by Sandoz, and they, it wasn't illegal at the time. And Phil tried it once and had a terrible experience. So with the second one, he took the dose and mixed it with an entire bowl of sugar and just ate a little bit of the sugar so that he had a very mild dose. And he said it was more like meth than LSD. I've never heard of cutting your LSD with sugar. But then again, I don't well, do a whole lot of LSD. I don't think Phil ever heard of it either, but the sugar bowl was handy. And he didn't want as large a dose. Um, to, kind of, to kind of dovetail off of that first question, another thing that comes up on the podcast quite a bit is how his works are adapted. And I would say so many of them are essentially reduced to being action films, when a lot of the books aren't terribly heavy on the action. Um, right. What would you say is the most most Dickian adaptation of his work? Well, there are two. I think my favorite is Radio Free Albemuth, which, even though they made many changes, it still remained faithful to the novel that Phil wrote. And by the way, Radio Free Albemuth is a much better novel than Vallis. And the other film that I think is very good, even though it also made major changes, is Screamers. Mm -hmm. The critics hated it, but it's really true to the spirit of Second Variety. It's very true to Second Variety. Um, we covered it on the podcast. And while I definitely think the ending of Screamers is a little bit sci-fi channel <laughs> cheesy... Yeah. I think it's a pretty faithful adaptation of Second Variety. Second Variety is a great 
and, and interestingly enough, bleak story. Would you say the short stories tend to be a little bit darker than the, the novels, which had a lot more humor to them and a lot more kind of political jabs? Well, in general, the stories are darker, but I can't help thinking of Rogue, which is just charming about this dog who thinks the trash men are aliens stealing their valuables out of the trash. Mm-hmm. It's sad at the end where the wife says the dog is getting old and will need to be put down, but it isn't as dark as some of the others. Um, I think at the heart of it is a lack of trust. In Phil's novels, the characters don't and cannot trust each other. I would say that's a running theme in most of all of his work. Yeah. Endless, like, series of paranoid characters. Um, so I've been meaning to, I've been wanting to, to discuss this, and I tried to discuss it on the podcast a few times, but we didn't really get into it, is how Phil represents uh, women in his books. Oh, yeah. He has the um, crotchety wife, the prostitute, and the victim. And oftentimes a a more exotic woman, I've found. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. A dark-haired, exotic woman. Well, I had dark hair a few years ago. I wasn't exotic. I was actually born a redhead. Mm -hmm. I had auburn hair, but by the time... Phil met me what was more brown than red. A lot of these these frustrations with the, with the women characters come come across in a lot of Dick's work. Did, did he kind of always seem to struggle with relationships? Romantic relationships, I guess I should have specified. I think Phil had trouble with all relationships. But when he thought someone was an enemy, he went by the old Chinese wisdom. Keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. Which, uh, of course, goes back to the first Chinese Qin emperor who built a palace complex, so all his subordinates had to live in the Forbidden City where he could keep an eye on them. So if you find people who think they were close to Phil, they might not have been friends. So to kind of just go back to my previous question, uh, do you do you think that a lot of the characters are indicative of just people that were involved in his daily life at the time? Oh yes, many of them are. But he would um, create a, a patchwork from several different people mm-hmm. to create a, one character. Somehow I find I want ketchup. Anyway. Um, Back to the darkness, I think we tend to view his novels as less dark than the stories. Part of that is because he just couldn't, quite often could not write a decent ending. He didn't know how to end it. I actually thought of a new ending for Ubik. It's one of the most open endings he has. I suppose it's safe to share it, because no one will ever buy it from me. Although I did write it in the form of a screenplay, I can't publish it. Mm-hmm. I don't own any rights to Ubik. Not anymore. Used to. Anyway, um, at the end, his girlfriend, Pat, Joe Chip's girlfriend, Pat, tells him that he's an android, a robot made of metal, and that he is the bomb that killed 
all his co-workers. And she, he doesn't believe her because he's never trusted her. So she, she points out because she has this power to change the past so that things go better. Like when her psychic parents punished her because they knew she was going to break a vase. She went back and changed it so the vase never got broken. That sort of thing. She tells him she's been going back in the past to change things, and no matter what she does or says, he won't believe her, he won't trust her, and he won't let her defuse the bomb. So she does the only thing she can do. She goes back into the past and sets off the bomb so that Joe and Pat both die, but everyone else is saved. Does that story um, That's connect a, with you in terms of your relationship with Bill? Wanting to kind of go back and... To some extent, but mostly it draws on his own personal inability to trust, especially women. He had a, a, an ambivalent relationship with his mother. Mm-hmm. Now, I've met Dorothy and talked on the phone with her and, you know, corresponded by, of all things, snail mail. She's a, she was a wonderful, cultured, sweet lady, but she had no business raising children. She didn't have the skills or ability. I don't know how I managed to raise my son, but he thinks I'm wonderful. Then I think you did the job right. Well, he has a daughter, and that... The older his daughter gets, the wiser I am. <laughs> I missed the beginning of the talk, but you, you met Philip when and then... Oh, I didn't talk about how we met. I'm tired of talking about oh, how okay. we met. Okay. He was set up to meet because his girlfriend at the time wanted to dump him. Her name was Ginger, and she really wanted him to meet my mother. Even though Mom was married, she was known to be unfaithful all the time, any time. Uh, but Mom wouldn't go, so I went to this beach party. And we could, it was, I don't know, the closest Saturday to the 4th of July in 1972. And we never did go to the beach. We tried, but it was too crowded. So we had a backyard barbecue at some guy's house and Neither Phil nor I knew anyone there, except we both knew Ginger. Phil was clingy, and Ginger didn't want him. I think a lot of writers are clingy. Well, the whole time we were married, you know, we were struggling financially. And I I was quite willing to go get a job, and Phil wouldn't hear of it. Um, it was brought up on, I, I can't remember if it was during your Tucker or Nick's, but it was brought up that... Phil wasn't seen as as good of a writer as he is just because of genre. Did he ever struggle with, I mean, I'm sure he had, did he struggle a lot with not wanting to be a genre writer? It wasn't Phil who was struggling. His mother Mm -hmm. and his wife Anne wanted him to be a real writer and write mainstream literature. And they didn't even care if he made any money at it because it would be more respectable. Right. And Dorothy, Phil's mother, always wanted to be a writer herself. But, you know, you have to write something. She did write pamphlets for the government, 
of all things, they were advice for new mothers. And, and the reason I ask that is because I've read enough articles to feel like to try to get a feel for whether or not he wanted to be a literary writer versus a genre writer. And but it seems to me that at the at the end of the day, he enjoyed writing science fiction. Phil wanted to please his mother and his wife by writing literary fiction, but... But the stuff for him would be the stuff that we know him for. The first time he read science fiction, he knew that's what he wanted to write. And frankly, it was selling, and his mainstream novels were not. And they are quite good. I especially like The Man Whose Teeth Were All Exactly Alike. But for some reason, the first one published was Confessions of a Crop Artist. I guess Paul Williams liked that one best. What do you think have been some of Phil's more underrated books? Uh, My personal favorite is probably uh, Solar Lottery. Yeah, I think The Penultimate Truth. And after the presentation, all I can think of is Lies, Inc., but that <laughs> isn't the version I read. The Unteleported Man. It was a book that I had actually read before I met Phil, but I didn't remember the author's name. You know, the authors were not important to me when I was in high school. I, I'd heard of Hemingway and Faulkner, of course, and that was about it. But I was reading mostly nonfiction till I was stuck in a mountain cabin with nothing to read, and someone had left a copy of The Unteleported Man in the Ace Double. The other side was mind monsters. <laughs> mind monsters was okay, but I knew even at the time that the unteleported man was a much better novel. Anyway, it deals with important issues the way the Twilight Zone did in their science fiction format, especially when Rod Serling wrote the scripts. You couldn't talk about these things in, in the mainstream media, but if you add some spaceships and aliens, then it's okay. <laughs> then it sells, I guess. Um, you mentioned the penultimate truth, and like I said, I read conversations with Phil on the plane ride over here from San Diego, and I actually didn't realize that there was a sequel for the penultimate truth. So were those always meant to be two books for that story? Phil always wanted to write sequels to his novels, but that one in particular, because he wanted something probably a lot like Radio Free Albemuth, in which people who learn the truth organize to uh, overthrow their overlords. But, uh, yeah, I don't think he ever seriously started on it unless it was among the things that were stolen in 71, but he probably just had a few notes. And you mentioned at, on your talk, and you mentioned here that there are, there are just things you're tired of talking about when in regards to Phil. What are some things that nobody really does discuss with you that you think people should know? Well, they seem, they seem to think that when we got divorced, that was the end of the relationship. That was the beginning, because he no longer had the right to question me about where I was going, what I was doing, or with whom. Mm -hmm. 
So we got down to a real relationship of interacting with each other and our son without all the baggage. Mm-hmm. And frankly, I think I'm the only one who ever really listened to him when he was talking about his experiences. And they went back to early childhood. Okay. When he, he used to fantasize that he was playing with his sister Jane, who had died as an infant. He would be Roy Rogers and she would be Dale Evans. Here's a question. If you if, if Bill Bill were alive today, what do you think he would how do you think he'd be handling all the all the surveillance technology and a lot of the stuff that he wrote about is seems to be coming it's largely prophetic. Yeah. Well, he was already pretty much a Luddite. He did get Select TV. It was an early version of cable with one whole channel. It wasn't long after that that I got actual cable TV, but most of what we got was just the uh, regular free channels over a cable. <laughs> yeah. You had to pay extra if you wanted movies or something. Tasha, you mentioned the the phone call from from how Leary. Oh, that yeah. And I I imagine you know he had a lot of interesting people that came through his life because of his work. Yeah. Are there any other stories that are that you you find interesting of people that were attracted to, to his work? Well, I don't know if they were terribly famous, but. Well, not just famous, but like just, you know, characters. He had a, um, we had a friend who was a producer of independent films, which means no money. You're right. He used to come over and show us these 16 millimeter films, you know, low budget stuff. And, um, we'd move the furniture because, so we'd have enough empty wall to show a film. You know, he'd bring friends with him. And I've forgotten the guy's name. But one time he warned us ahead of time he was bringing an actress and she didn't want any fuss and he wasn't allowed to tell us who she was. So Phil went around pestering her. You'd be great in the movie of my novel, you know, and going like this, like he's framing her for a film. And she finally had had it and told him who she was. She was Barbara Hershey Seagull. She was still calling herself Seagull at the time, like a, the bird, the ocean bird. Anyway, we, she had dinner, watched films with us, and insisted on helping with the dishes afterward. Only person who ever thought to take a little of the load off me. Nice. Yeah. He tried to contact Victoria Principal and... uh Kay Lenz using the line that they're going to make a movie of my novel Ubik. Their uh, agents and publicists never really responded, not seriously. He did get some fan photos sent to him, yeah. But uh, I think until the Blade Runner movie was in production, he really didn't meet a lot of famous people. But when he was young early 20s, he met people who became famous. There's the poet Robert Duncan, and I can't think of names, really can't. Oh, he had the opportunity to meet Aldous Huxley, but he had to be a smart aleck. Someone said, 
You want to come to a party? You you can meet Huxley. And Phil just had to have a comeback, so he said, Aldous or Julian? <laughs> and he was uninvited. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, Julian Huxley was probably dead at the time. I'm not sure if I know Aldous. But I Julian, uh, he was famous for something to do with genetics. Oh, okay. They were brothers. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, did. I wasn't. I'm not familiar with Um, there are obviously a lot of overt religious themes in Phil's work, but everything I've read, it doesn't. It seems like he kind of had a fluidity when it came to religion and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Did he ever settle on kind of one kind of pathway, or was he always just kind of just in search of something? I think he. I think Phil did a lot of searching with regard to religion. He wasn't a churchgoer except when uh, he went to the Episcopal Church, but he claimed that Anne made him go. I don't know if that's true, but of course that's how he met this Bishop James Pike, and it's also how he met his next wife, Nancy. Uh, Nancy's stepmother was Bishop Pike's secretary. Okay. Anyway... Bishop Pike had some really strange ideas. He was a bit of a Gnostic, and he rubbed off on Phil. And Pike was also friends with John Allegro, who, in my opinion, went nuts and decided that Jesus was really a psychedelic mushroom. <laughs> I can understand that. <laughs> yeah, I read a pamphlet-sized book about what's wrong with his book, The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. Yeah. Phil was a highly emotional person. Definitely. Very, Phil was very sensitive, and his mother was brought up by an English mother, so she wasn't overly affectionate because that just wasn't done. It's an English thing which isn't happening so much in England anymore. And Phil was a needy child, born premature, his twin didn't survive, and he didn't get the cuddling he needed as an infant or growing up. He, When he was in high school, he would come home and he had to be very quiet because his mother was already in bed reading a book and he, she read a book every day. They were Reader's Digest condensed books, but she insisted she had to read one every day. I can't imagine. So she'd come home from work Go to bed, read a book, and go to sleep, and Phil was on his own. So he and probably Ray Nelson and maybe a couple other people would go down. The house had a basement with a radio, and they'd listen to classical music. He didn't really get into rock and roll until after Nancy left. Her brother Michael stayed on at the house with Phil, and he was into rock and roll. And all those young people who were hanging out, supposedly with Phil, were really Michael's friends. He was much younger. Mm -hmm.